Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, we head to Austria to visit one of its most special wineries. When we go out there in the world, we don't talk about the wine so much. The wine is a part of it and it's not more valuable than anything else we do on the farm. I'd rather talk about the environment and the organism the way what we do. Then we hear from the Ukrainian chef and author Olya Hercules about how food can unite people. I know that there's a bit of a cliche of like, oh yeah, everyone's breaking bread and sitting around the table, but it's true. I mean, that's what we do. All that's the week's headlines, a great cocktail recipe and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too, ahead in this episode of The Menu. First today we head to Austria. Mindklang is a family-run and biodynamically certified farm in Austria's easternmost province of Burgenland. Its excellent wines are exported all over the world and its food can be enjoyed at its farm shop in Vienna. Monaco's Alexei Korolev meets the people behind the name. It is so many things. Of course, the main is my relationship to the product of every one of us who is involved with it, you know. The klang is the, this one referring to this harmonic sound, ein klang, referring to in connection with nature. Werner Michlitz is one of three brothers who own and run mein klang. And there's so many meanings in it. And the M still though for the family name, you know, there, that is uh-huh. starting, Michlitz, you know? yeah, and mein klang is, it's really my sound, my vibe. It's not egoistic in that meaning, but everyone needs his own vibe. Mein Klang is perhaps best known for its organic wines, but it's much more than just a winery. I'm Niklas Pelzer, being part of the Mein Klang farm since around uh, nine or ten years. So Mein Klang is a farm based um, on generations of farming within a family, the Michlitz family. It's quite interesting in the 80s already they turned into organic farming because they just saw the depression of modern days farming, of industrialization of farming. When we go out there in the world, we don't talk about the wine so much. The wine is a part of it, and it's not more valuable than anything else we do on the farm. I'd rather talk about the environment and the organism, the way what we do, because this is also what daily happening. We talk about the wine five minutes, sure, you need logistics to get a bottle here, the labels there, one, but what, what shapes us on a daily thinking, right, and the conversations happening is about the whole picture. There's also a Waldorf school on the farm and a shop in Vienna that doubles as a restaurant. Its chef, Thomas Piplitz, has fixed up a little lunch. So it's our uh, Jausenplatte, or in English you say charcuterie plate. So we have um, a lot of our own cuts, um, which are um, aged for quite a long time. There is some uh, very classic Austrian Speck, which is uh, strong smoked. Then we have a Bresaola, and some uh, cheese from Kaslam and veggies from the garden. And all of it, the food, the wine, the school, the whole enterprise, is based on the teachings of Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner, who devised and promoted the idea of biodynamics. In its core, it is a form of organic farming that uses elements of astrology and homeopathy, while also forbidding the use of chemicals. Many critics have dismissed it as unscientific and esoteric, but Werner Michlitz says they've got it all wrong. How Steiner has described the word esoteric gives a total other meaning actually to it. He said, esoteric is the knowledge of the most inner secrets. So how we use the word is actually nowadays in average is totally wrong in its meaning. Mm. And, um, and that can 
discover. discovering the secret. That is uh, actually the meaning on it. And with that, I it gets a total different meaning. You know, the whole thing in, in general. So you know, as a as a as a representative of a uh, how did you put it? Poly, poly polyculture. Polyculture farm. Yeah. Biodynamic. Yeah. Is it difficult to sell uh, this concept and be successful? The last question for Niklas Pelzer. I mean, um, we are not really in the game to sell. I know that sounds idealistic. For me, coming from a, I would say, conventional background growing up, coming to Meinklang, I really can say for myself that I could feel that there. This is why I wanted to be part of it. Of course, there's always a, a responsibility and you have a responsibility towards your land and towards your um, employees as well, right? So that is not taken lightly or immature, but we are not really in the game to sell. Uh, we are in the game to do a good responsible farming and whatever comes out of that, we are satisfied and happy with. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. Thanks to Alexei for that report. Up next, we turn our attention to a beautiful new book by celebrated Ukrainian chef and author Olya Hercules. As the name suggests, Home Food Recipes to Comfort and Connect contains a range of dishes with a connection to the various chapters of Olya's life, from her childhood in Eastern Europe to years spent in Cyprus and Italy. Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court recently caught up with Olya to find out more about the idea behind the book and why food can be such a powerful tool to unite people. I was born in Ukraine, but have lived in the UK for the past 20 years, and I've been chefing for the past 13, 14 years, I think, and I've written four cookbooks now. So this is my fourth. It's called Home Food. And previously I've also published Mamushka, which was a hundred recipes from my family growing up in Ukraine. The second cookbook was called Caucasus, and it's all about food from the Caucasus area. As I also have half Ukrainian, half Armenian relatives that lived in Azerbaijan. My third cookbook is called Summer Kitchens, and it's a regional Ukrainian cookbook. And here we are now with home food. Could you just give us an overview of the book in your own words and kind of how the idea came about? My focus in food writing has always been a little bit anthropological and I always thought that that's what I'd be doing forever, that I'd be travelling and telling people stories and histories about culture. And then pandemic hit when it was time to write my fourth cookbook and we were stuck at home. Well, we also had a baby, so it was like two months old baby, first lockdown, and I thought, okay, so I'll have to write something from home, which actually devastated me at first because I thought, oh, what's so, you know, there's nothing interesting here. I need to be traveling. I need to be discovering. I need to be doing these things. And then I just kind of paused for a minute. And actually during the pandemic, during the first lockdown, I realized how much more observant I've suddenly become. And we were, you know, going on all of those walks. It was actually quite a nice warm spring. And then come May, June, I've noticed that the lime trees were blossoming 
and they smelled amazing. They smelled sticky, like honey, and it just really reminded me of Ukraine because we also had loads of lime trees. And then I kind of delved into the history of lime tree blossom in Victorian <laughs> England and just started making connections between my new homeland, the UK, and my old homeland, Ukraine. A couple of other things came about. So, for example, I was cutting an apple for my older son who was hungry, and then I took a little piece of that apple and I tried it. And again, I just went, whoa, that apple tasted like onion because obviously I was making dinner, so I was cutting onion before. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my God, this tastes like my childhood. It's such a simple thing. And I thought, is this a Ukrainian thing or maybe it's a universal thing? So then I started interviewing my friends. Some of them are food writers, some are not, from all over the world, really. And I just wanted to... I was looking for connections, really, and I found plenty. So in the end, it's a hundred recipes that I cook at home. There are some recipes from Ukraine and there are some recipes from all over the world. And there are also little vignettes written by my friends and also some essays from me, including the lime tree story. And it's all about human connections, about comfort, about everything that we needed during that lovely and warm but uncertain spring. I think when I was having a look through the book, it's almost like a lovely snapshot of your life, which I guess is, in essence, what probably a home is. Is You know, you could probably tell quite a lot about a person from their home. But as you mentioned, it encompasses everything from your life in kind of multicultural London to your time as an exchange student in Italy. And I guess also, yes, an insight into what you do at home. Yeah. There's a quite an interesting aspect where you have the Guardian weekend laid out there. And you, I guess it's quite relatable, <laughs> you know. It kind of shows the identity of you and of your food that you've been cooking as well. But was that something that you wanted to do to kind of take a step back and examine your journey through food and how the different places you've been to, the different places you've lived has influenced that? Yeah, so from that moment of despair when I thought, oh, there's nothing interesting in my life to actually pausing and speaking with my family and, you know, even with my older son, Sasha, who's nine at the time, I just realized, well, I knew it really, but I kind of delved deeper into my memories, into my experiences as an immigrant, because I emigrated the first time from Ukraine when I was almost 13. I was 12 years old and I went to live in Cyprus. So I lived in Cyprus with my mom for five years. And then I came to the UK to study at uni when I was 18. And that was another transition. And then I decided to study Italian at university. So I went to Italy as an exchange student for a year. And each time, yeah, there were incredible experiences. And also something that I've realized that was paramount, that was really important, was that it was food and humor that kind of gave me a way in. The moment that I was able to exchange a little bit, whether it was just a story about food or actually cooking something for someone. So, for example, in the UK, when I made my best friend, Caroline, who I met at work, and then she invited me over and she cooked something and I brought something over and we exchanged. And then 15, 16 years on, we're still best friends. And similarly, in Italy, when I didn't really speak the language, because when I joined university, you could join without any language at all. So I was still <laughs> learning. And at first, it was really scary. And, you know, I'm quite a communicative person. And then all of a sudden, you're just paralyzed because you can't really express yourself. But in the halls of residence in, in Italy, we made friends with loads of Italian students. And actually, loads of them were from the south of Italy. And again, just these connections just fired. I was just like, oh, this is just like Ukraine. There was a 
guy called Pepe who was from Puglia and his parents, you know, had a butchery and they would send him these boxes of different cuts of meat and, you know, I don't know, like tomato sauce that the mum would make and whatever. And I just made a connection with what my mum used to do for my brother, who's eight years older than me. He went to Odessa when we were in Ukraine. He went to study in Odessa. And my mum used to pack these boxes and she would even like roast the whole duck (laughs) and send it over. And he would be like playing duck hunt there and, and eating the whole duck with my cousin. So, you know, it's all of these things that regardless of where you have grown up, there are little bits, especially from kind of your younger years and from your childhood or when a family is forming that are really universal. And there's a lot of kind of moments that you pick out nearly all of them centred around food, from when you're in Italy, when you're in Cyprus. This is all kind of prior to you becoming a chef. Did you have any inkling at the time that that was what you are going to do, or do you think these memories kind of, and these moments inspired and kind of pushed you towards that? Yeah, so even though my mom and my dad and everyone in my family were amazing cooks, I loved eating, but I never really cooked much when I was little. I was too lazy and, uh, and you know, not very observant at all. So I used to burn things. Even my parents tried to teach me, but I was not very receptive. And then it was in Italy, actually. All of the Italian friends were fantastic, both the male and female, you know, would make quite simple things using good ingredients. And again, and that actually awoke something in me their enthusiasm and love and the fun that they had as they were cooking and this connection to their families as well. So when I went back to the UK, that's when I just became obsessed. I started with small things and then I got really into baking and throughout my 20s I was just completely obsessed with cooking and then a time came in 2008 when I was 26 when I just decided to quit my job. I was a journalist and I decided to uh, go and retrain to be a chef. And in the book, you also talk about the power of food in uniting people. And you say that, you know, this, because it spans so many different cultures, this book, that you do hope that it will have the power to unite people. How important can food be as a vehicle to do that? Uh, Extremely important, I think. It's more than just food, isn't it? And I know that there's a bit of a cliche of like, oh, yeah, everyone's breaking bread and sitting around the table. But, But it's true. I mean, that's what we do. And, for example, with recent events and everything that's been happening and we've started this cook for ukraine campaign and it's been amazing to see people cook ukrainian food and you think when people get you know war fatigue when they can't look at any more horrific headlines and they're Mm -hmm. tired of the ukrainian war whatever if if they make a dish at home and maybe within themselves they can picture or they can just feel how we feel how my countrymen and women feel then maybe There will be a long-lasting connection, yeah, and will be remembered. And there is one chapter in the book specifically that does focus on the food from your homeland, from Ukraine, and uh, it's called Potatoes and Cabbage, which I have to say I think might be my favourite chapter. (laughs) You called this because of a previous lazy stereotype that people had with food from Ukraine. How much do you think you've changed that? Because surely you have, right? Oh, no, absolutely. So at the beginning of my career, I used to pitch loads of Ukrainian recipes to different magazines, etc. And often enough, the answer would be, oh, I've been to the Soviet Union in the 1970s and I've eaten and, and it was all overcooked cabbage and potatoes and dumplings. And it's like, you probably ate in a Soviet canteen or not a very good restaurant. You probably didn't eat at somebody's grandmother's house. You probably didn't delve deep enough into it. But at the same time, I was affected by the stereotype. And I just and I was scared. And I was just like, no, I have to let everyone know that Ukraine and Eastern Europe is very diverse, that 
it's very regional that, you know, yes, up north, it's almost like Italian north where we have like polenta dishes and seps and deeper kind of like wintry flavors. And then if you go down south where I'm from and Kherson, it's almost Mediterranean. We've got these massive tomatoes and aubergines and mulberries and sour cherries and apricots and everything that you can think of just falling on your head as you walk down the street, you know, all this fruit and colour and herbs and freshness. So for ages, I was trying to push just to let people know about that side of Ukrainian cuisine. But when I started writing Home Food, I think it was actually Nigella Lawson's essay about brown food in her latest book, Cook It Repeat, where she just says, embrace brown food. It's amazing. And I did. And I just thought, you know what? Yes, we have all of this color and you know cornucopia of flavors and freshness in Ukraine, but we also have some of the best potato and cabbage dishes, and we should bloody embrace them. <laughs> some of the <laughs> so best brown food. <laughs> yeah, some of the best brown food in the world. So yeah, hail to brown food. And you did mention there the importance of eating around grandmothers. That's obviously a place where kind of food cultures can be passed down from generation to generation. And one aspect which has seemingly been passed down from your grandmother who you called the economizing queen, is being economical with your food, you know? There are recipes in here which rely on leftovers and the ingredients in general, you know, they're things that most people can find in most shops. It's not a very complicated list of ingredients. How important is that for you? And I guess right now in a time where, you know, food security is not at its best, the global economy is also struggling, you know, people want to make good food, but also have it locally available to them and at a decent price. I find that with the way that we grew up and were taught how to cook and eat, it kind of corresponds with, as you mentioned, with these recent kind of almost trends, you know, so zero waste, seasonal and local, you know, that was just the way of life. We didn't have these kind of terms in Ukraine, but that's how we did it. And yeah, my grandmother, Vera, who was from Siberia originally, but she lived in Ukraine for most of her life and died there a few years ago. She was incredible. And she was forever walking around the house and switching the lights off, you know. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> you can hear her clicking away, and she's doing, which was completely correct, you yeah. know. But And we would kind of like, as kids, we'd kind of like laugh. And if we didn't finish food, she would inevitably like finish our plates. Like nothing was thrown out. Bread, especially for both my Ukrainian and my Siberian grandma, bread was something sacred. You just wouldn't see them throwing it in the bin. You would use it in one way or another. And I try my best to also follow that. And in the book, you'll see actually loads of suggestions for leftovers, loads of suggestions for how to turn one actual recipe into another, how to preserve, how to just be quite savvy with the way that you cook and that you eat and you feed your children. And yeah, I think it's really needed right now. And it's interesting, I guess, that, you know, that's actually things that in many parts of the world have been going on for years, you know, and now it's being picked up probably more in Western society as we realise the need for it. Exactly. And maybe just to finish, I found it really interesting, and as you mentioned, that you got your friends involved with this. Yeah. And it's really nice to see their descriptions of home and kind of how that interacts with the food that they've either eaten growing up or the different experiences they've had. How nice was it for you to kind of ask people to do that and to gain an insight into what they believe about home. Well, it was so nice. And the idea actually stemmed from that moment when I tried the onion and apple. So I asked my friend Caroline, and she's from Shropshire, and I said, does that ring a bell? Do you do? And she said, yes, 
yeah, the onion and the apple, like totally get it. And she had a little story where she, her mom would always put it into a little empty margarine container and she would go behind the sofa and kind of play shop and eat this apple. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to ask others. And I started asking my other friends for stories. And I said, something like this. It doesn't have to be a dish, but something that's kind of like, that you're maybe curious about, like, is there a very similar moment in another culture? You know, so then, yeah, we have little vignettes from a few people, from Adrian Chang, who lives in California, and he wrote about a rice dish that they used to make during Christmas. Then there's Jeremy Lee of Quo Vadis, who's talking about his grandma's lentil soup. And, you know, they're quite simple descriptions, but there's just something there that just really makes you pause and kind of makes you feel warm and comforted and uh, Mm. connected. Yeah, and I think the fact that you know that it's of value to someone probably adds importance to it. I guess you know that that's a vital part of someone's life and something that is almost potentially a milestone in their life. And I hope that it also makes people kind of think and maybe even record their own little vignettes from their own lives. I started a diary just before the pandemic when I was pregnant with my son, Wilfred, and it's a fat diary and I did finish it and I never thought that I would, but just little sentences here and there and I'd encourage everyone to start writing down their parents and their grandparents' stories. I think it's such a nice thing to leave Mm. for your children or for yourself to read in the future. That was Olya Hercules in conversation with Monocle's Charlie Phil McCourt. Home Food Recipes to Comfort and Connect is published by Bloomsbury and is out now. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Supplies of prosciutto, tomatoes, olive oil and risotto rice are under threat, as northern Italy suffers its worst drought in 70 years. Agriculture Minister Stefano Patuanelli warned this week that 30% of the country's agricultural production could be at risk. A state of emergency was called in the northern Po River Basin last week in response to the drought. A cask of rare Scotch whisky has sold for a world record smashing £16 million to a private collector in Asia. The single malt dates to 1975 and was produced by the Ardbeg Distillery in the Scottish island of Isla near Glasgow. 88 bottles, each costing about £36,000, will be drawn from the barrel each year for the next five years and delivered to the buyer. The previous record was set in April at £1 million. The European Union's Court of Justice has ruled that Denmark was breaking EU law by allowing its dairies to sell cheese labelled feta outside the bloc. Feta has a strict legal definition within the EU and can only be sold as such if produced in Greece according to an ancient recipe. Copenhagen had argued these rules don't apply to exports, but the court found that they do. Vancouver has become the newest Michelin Guide destination, with a full list of the Canadian city's best restaurants due this autumn. Michelin has praised the high-quality local produce on offer in Vancouver, and its anonymous inspectors are already scoping out the best eating and drinking spots. The publication of the guide could also see the West Coast city awarded its first Michelin star. Thanks Lillian, you are with The Menu. Before this week's dinner soundtrack recommendation, we have time for a quick recipe. Ryan Chetiawadna is one of the world's most innovative and respected cocktail experts, and he shares one of his favourite recipes with us. 
So I'm Ryan Chafee Wardner, or Mr. Lion, and we're here in my Bar Seed Library in the 100 Shoreditch Hotel in East London. And I'm here to present a drink that really represents a lot of our philosophy here at Seed Library. It's called the Coriander Seed Gimlet. And what we've tried to do with the bar is, is really embrace kind of those natural forms, things that feel like they're very close to nature. They've got this wonderful fuzziness to them, and we're not overly polishing things, so you kind of remove that wonderful kind of like little nuance and variance that you find in produce. So this drink was a bit about origin points. You know, how can we strip back to the heart of cocktails and, you know, think about the bias of ingredients that we've been using for the hundreds of years that these drinks have existed. So with the Gimlet, it's a very simple drink that's a mix classically of a London dry gin and a lime cordial. It was an old kind of navy favorite, really simple. And it obviously uses the kind of citrusy brightness to kind of play to those citrus notes that you find in, in gin. Instead of using citrus at the heart of this, we've used coriander seed. So actually it's used a lot of times in gin to bring a citrusy note. So it was a, a natural kind of bedfellow in that sense. But actually we really wanted to kind of look into different varieties of coriander seed. So we, we did a bit of research. We looked at different places people grow it to be very much in tune with their land, to reflect different characteristics of this really interesting herb. So some were very deep and, and kind of spicy, some ended up kind of really taking on almost like a woodsy, earthy note. But what we found was a, I think it's a Bulgarian variety that ends up having this incredible balance of citrus notes and this kind of like florality to it. And that to us was the wonderful breadth that we wanted to embrace. So it's quite easy to do a version of at home. We, we brew essentially a tea. We try and kind of not extract too much of the kind of deep notes so we don't go too hot on that. And then we just sweeten that up and acidulate it like a cordial. So there's a bit of acidity just to kind of help the flavors pop and to kind of give this contrast in a drink. And then that's it simply mixed. It's a, a mix of London dry gin. We, we use beef eater that's got both that kind of juniper presence to it and that lovely citrus brightness. And then we mix it with the cordial. So bring uh, some ice out. Simply stirred over ice. So we have our mix of beef eater and our coriander seed cordial that we stir over ice. Now the idea is to get, obviously, we need to chill the drink down. So stirring over ice allows us to kind of keep the texture but really drop the temperature down. We keep the batch chilled so it's preserving all of those kind of aromas, but we may need to give it a good stir to, to introduce dilution, open up the flavors, without adding any air into the mix. So it's a, it's a decent stir on, on the cocktail, just to make sure everything's kind of chilled, diluted, and, and the flavors start to, to kind of blossom out. And then we serve this straight up in a frozen glass. And we garnish it with a white grape. So it's just a little flourish on the final kind of mouthful that kind of ties into the brightness of the drink, actually. So very simple, but it really embraces the kind of philosophy of what we do at Seed Library. Very much this idea of an embrace of, of natural forms and the kind of the inherent fuzziness that you get in kind of having things that are very close to nature. So even down to, you know, a glassware, it's embracing things that have maybe little imperfections, little bubbles that come in in the glasses. We do this wonderful branding work that we've worked with, you know, Magpie since our dandelion days. And it, it really looks at some of that kind of language of nature. Those are all the things that we want to have that feel very stripped back and easy. You know, we want this to be a very approachable cocktail bar. 
you know, that's why we have such a, a focus on different beers, wines, spirits, sake, as well as our cocktails in a very kind of approachable space to have something that's simple, but really packs a, a lot of complexity. Ryan Chetiawardner there. His new bar seed library is open at the 100 Shoreditch Hotel in East London. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously, you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. Next week on The Menu, we'll be meeting one of Israel's most successful chefs, Eyal Shani. If you are working with different cities, it's like to work with a chain of brands. You're creating a net made out of culture, different cultures. And in the end, you are one of the, you are the, the one that is expressing it. But um, to come to London without being surprised and inspired and admired, I have nothing to do with it. More from A.L. Shani next week. This episode of The Menu was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Sin with Drinks. Thanks for listening. Here you go.